Man, we live in exciting times. Do you guys know that? Exciting times. Um, as we come to uh, uh, Psalm 60, we begin in uh, tonight. <clears throat> it's a psalm that asks a, a question. It's kind of funny because <clears throat> as we go through the psalms we'll look at tonight, one of the, the themes of it is, which way are you or do you um, want to lean in uh, reliance on God or reliance on self? Can you be God-dependent or self-reliant? And really, those are a lot of the struggles we go through day in and day out, just in our spiritual walk with the Lord. Can I be God-dependent? Am I okay um, with, the, with the right turns and left turns life takes? And recognize in the midst of all of that, God's still working. God is not off the throne. He didn't lose control for a little while, and uh, crazy things happen. God's still on the throne. He still knows what he's doing. Jesus declared, if I cast out uh, demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And the kingdom of God is without end. Jesus Christ is in control. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has risen to the right hand. It is that time and place we see ourselves moving and working and having our being in. The question for you and I is, has anything changed about our responsibility? And Psalm 60 is a really neat psalm to look at for that idea, okay? Things happen in life. Every one of us have at one time or another, even if we, if, even if we don't look at what's going on in the world or in our nation or any of that stuff, maybe that drum's been beat pretty good. But the idea that there are occasions when our life takes a left turn and goes in a direction we didn't want, and sometimes we find ourselves scrambling to control it. I can control this turn. I can control this tumble. I can control this event. And the reality is, you can't control anything. I tell people all the time, control is an illusion. You can make the best laid plans of mice and men. You can have all kind of ideas of what you're going to do. But you cannot control it. Um, Matt and Gina were up with us at family camp. A lot of you guys know they were headed home, what, like three days ago now? And uh, they rolled their truck and trailer and ended up in a hospital in Ely. Uh, everybody's okay. Baby Gwen's okay. She didn't even get a scratch. Um, Matt got bruised up. Gina got a, a fracture, a, a compression fracture in her neck, which is okay. And uh, 10 stitches in her head. The truck is obliterated. The trailer is a yard sale. Uh, all the way home, they were pretty sure they were in control of what was going to happen that day. Until everything went out of control. And when that happens, when life goes out of control or things happen that we don't expect, our initial response is exactly what David does in Psalm 60. Like, God, what happened? Where'd you go? Did you like let go of me for a minute and all this crazy stuff is going on? Because I'm, I'm here with you. I'm, I'm doing things. At this time in Psalm 60 in David's life, David's having unprecedented success in military uh, um, battles. He's doing good, but as he's he's moving forward and he's having these successes, he has an enemy kind of sneak in and backdoor him, and he ha- he 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 has a, a defeat. It's not really a defeat. I don't know if you get defeated when you're not there, but he wasn't there, and the enemy came in and, and wrought a lot of havoc. And so David saying, "But God, I'm following you, and I'm doing what you're what I'm supposed to do, and we're having all this success." And then all of a sudden, this happened. But it, was all part of God's purpose. It's all part of God's plan. And the sooner we come alongside and say, you know what, God, I, I don't maybe understand, right? Isaiah 55 says, his ways are higher than my ways. Is that true or not? Does God understand more about things than we understand? Sure he does. He, he sees the end from the beginning. He knows the reasons why we don't always get that information. But he does say, I know what I'm doing. Oh, trust me and let's go. Now, has our job changed? No matter what chaos happens, no matter what left or right turn, no matter what goes on, what the battle that we're called to is still the battle that we're called to. And the battle that we're called to is to proclaim what the Lord Jesus Christ is asking of all men, that all men everywhere would repent 
and believe, right? We turn from, we turn toward. We, our job is to present the gospel, to herald the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. That doesn't change. And there's nothing uh, any court in the United States can do about it. And it doesn't matter what they do. Our job hasn't changed and God didn't lose control. So when we look at Psalm 60, just see it in that, in that framework. Look what it says in the beginning. Oh God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. How many times do we feel that way when life goes wrong? When the truck is upside down? When the, your trailer is obliterated? When you're pretty sure I was going to be home today, but you, you end up spending a couple days in a hospital? How, how sure do you when, you, when that happens, you look at God and say, well, wait, what did I do wrong? Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't chasten his children. He does chasten his children. But I don't, I'm not necessarily certain that our first leap to the Lord should be, where'd you go? What happened? Man, things were going along just great. And now, uh, re, you know, he, he, says, he says to him, oh, restore us again. Now, I just want you to picture, because in David's life, when all this is going on, he is having victory. This is one defeat, and he wasn't even there. And it, and it causes David to, to question, God, are you mad at me? Did I do something wrong? And isn't that oftentimes the kind of response we get when, when something happens in our life? It really shakes up our world. When something goes on. We, here's what we do, guys, and it, it kind of cracks me up. We look at things like, I'm sure a lot of people did this. I might even have been guilty. I just can't remember that far back. You remember 2001, September 11th? And on that day, something happened, and, and probably a lot of us felt like, oh, it's a judgment of God. Or if we didn't feel that way, uh, some of us did. It's a judgment of God. We're always looking for the judgment of God in the big tragedy. And we don't pay attention to the, to the Bible and what the Bible says about the judgment of God. The judgment of God is, is much more subtle. Often. In fact, just, just hold your, your finger here. We'll be right back to it. This is a side note. But uh, flip over to Isaiah chapter 3. In Isaiah chapter 3, we, we can read uh, just an example of God bringing judgment um, on, on the nations and the subtlety of, of God's judgment. He says, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water. So we see a big thing, famine and, and lack of, of water. But then what's he say? A lack of leadership, verse 2. The mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, and the honorable man, the counselor, and the skillful artisan, and the expert enchanter. He, he says, I'm, I'm taking away your skilled leadership. Then he says, I'm going to give you children to lead you. The disqualified, the unqualified. And as we work our way through Isaiah chapter 3, that judgment is much more subtle than the tidal wave. And I'm reminded of Elijah. Remember Elijah the prophet has an incredible victory, right? Against the 400 priests of Baal. And he, he, he's, he, he has this incredible victory where God proves himself beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's God. Once and for all, before all the people, for everyone to see, fire comes out of heaven and licks up the offering, right? Big, huge victory. He's so stoked about it, he runs all the way back to, to, to I want to say Jerusalem, but it's not it. I think he goes to Samaria. Jezreel? And as he's headed back, he runs into Jezebel. And Jezebel says, I don't really care what God did. I am going to kill you this time tomorrow. So he turns around and runs away. And he's in a cave. And God comes to him in the cave and he asks him a question. Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah has some, some answers for him and then God reveals. We can't know anything about God apart from him revealing himself to us, right? The Bible says we're not going to find him. He's got to reveal himself to us. So he's revealing himself to Elijah and he shows himself in, in three big things, right? A, a big earthquake and the fire and the wind. But you remember what it said in each one of those? But God wasn't in those things. God wasn't in that. God wasn't in that. God wasn't in that. Then where did he, he see or feel or experience the revelation of God? In the still small voice. When God brings judgment on, on a nation, it, 
it comes often in subtle ways. As the nation begins to turn its back on the Lord, what does Romans 1 say? He turns them over. He turns them over. You're going to have a lack of leadership. You're going to have all these things going on. And sometimes what we can do in the church is want to rally around the need for a Messiah. We already have one. We don't need another Messiah. There's no political Messiah coming to save you. The Messiah has come. We have a job, a responsibility. We, won't, we don't want to get distracted by what's going on and recognize the big thing may not be the judgment, may be the consequences of, of the judgment that's already begun, that's already come. As he, as he goes on in, in Psalm 60, he says, You have made the earth tremble, you have broken it. So heal its breaches, for it is shaking. So he's talking about, man, the whole earth is falling apart. Everything in my life is crumbling. It's falling to pieces. I need you to heal it, God. I need you to put all the pieces back together. And then look what he says in verse 3. For you have shown your people hard things. This is difficult things to watch. Hard things to go through. Very, very uh, uh, true Learning to deal with disappointment, learning to deal with rejection, learning to deal with uh, uh, people that, that won't receive or can't hear or don't change. And you, and you keep putting out your pearl before the swine. But if the swine never has a change, it's never transformed, it's never going to receive the pearl. It's just a pig. So we, but it doesn't change our job, right? We still have to deal with the disappointment. Oh, the world's shaking. I don't understand why these things aren't working. Uh, um, you're showing me hard things and you've made us drink the wine of confusion. It's the idea, the picture, poetically, is we're stumbling around and we don't, we're not really sure what to do. <clears throat> Everything seemed like it was going this way. And now there's been a defeat. Whoa, God, what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? So as he lays this out, oftentimes you see this in the Psalms. He lays out this idea, God, have you forgotten us? Lord, have you lost control of the things that are going on? Are you paying attention to the things that are happening in our life? And then he begins to turn his eyes toward the Lord. The psalmist would often look at his problem and relate it. He, he'd talk about his disappointment. He'd talk about his fear. He'd talk about whatever's going on. But as he does that, he always turns from that and, and then begins to write about what he sees of God. What God is showing him, what he can recognize in the, in the handiwork of God. And that's what he begins to do in verse 4. He says, you have given a banner to those who fear you. You've given a banner, a covering. You've given that, something that we can march by. Something that we can hold to. Something that we can cling to. If we find ourselves in a place where we're being self-reliant, we feel like we have nothing to hold on to. I'm, I'm just holding on, I'm grabbing for vapor and air, and, and there's nothing to sustain me. But if we're following the, the banner that, that the Lord God has given to those who fear Him, we have something to hold on to. We have, something to, we have marching orders, we have a purpose, we have a job, and those things don't change. David still has a purpose. He still is to go out and conquest and conquer the nation and unite the kingdom. And that's what David's going to do. And none of that has changed. Though sometimes the individual battles take different turns because God's not only working in David's life. Is David the only one God's concerned with in all of Israel? Oh, he's, he's working in his life. He's working in Abishai's life. He's working in Joab's life. And in the mighty men of David, he's showing himself strong and mighty in a lot of different ways. And sometimes we can't see where all the threads come together. But it doesn't mean that they don't. We have a banner to stand under for those who fear God. The Bible tells very clearly his banner over us is love. That the Lord God loves us. He would say to, to the people, remember in Jeremiah 29, who are going into slavery and have lost everything, I, I love you. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. I have a design. Live your life. Fulfill your job, do your purpose, and trust that I'm working all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Those things are true. Those things are absolutely true. We can cling to them and we can hold to them. So this is what's going on. He's got a banner. Uh, and the banner is to be displayed. And he says, why should it be displayed? Because it's true. It's true. For me, that banner is Jesus Christ is Lord. 
You could put Jesus Christ as king, but the point of the deal is, if he's my savior, he better be my Lord. I'm not sure you can have one without the other. I'm I'm not here for a theological debate, but the point is, Jesus says, many of you will call me Lord, Lord, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Which would indicate... I'm not really your Lord. You're your Lord. You're not living in God dependence. You're living in self-reliance. And in self-reliance, you, you, there's this frustration continually, right? Because my plans aren't coming to fruition. Or we can take that banner. Jesus Christ is Lord. For David, it was uh, looking for Messiah. Messiah is king. God is king. We're, we're, we are a theophany. I may be God's anointed, but he's my king. I'm following him. Doesn't, it doesn't change. We get on that banner, we cling to that banner, and we move forward. Jesus Christ, my Lord. I will obey Him before I obey anybody else or anything else. My eyes focused on Him. For what purpose? Look at verse 5. That your beloved may be delivered. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, I'm clinging to this banner that's over me because it's true. And the reason I'm clinging to it is so that your beloved, the one whom you love... For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave. gave. So he's, his, those who are his, you can call them the elect, the church, the nation of Israel here in Psalms, whatever the case, so that your beloved is going to be delivered. So, so he's saying, I'm holding on to this banner that you are Lord, that you are king, because you are going to deliver the ones who you love. You're going to deliver them, and you're saving them with your right hand, and hear me. You can hear me. So you say with your right hand and you hear me. The idea is, look, I'm gonna, God's going to intervene on our behalf. So he sees this defeat, all these people, all this turmoil that's going on over here. He needs to go deal with it. And actually, David's not able to deal with it. He sends two guys, Joab and Abishai, and they take care of it. And, and we'll look at the story in a minute. But as he, he sends those guys out, and he said, look, I can send them. I send the whole army. I can send everybody I want. But if God doesn't save us with his right hand, you're not saved. You cannot save yourself. God saves you. That's grace. I cannot save myself. I place my hands in the one who can. I place my life in the one who saves. I put myself in his grip. It's either God dependence or self-reliance. And if it's self-reliance, remember a constant cycle of, of frustration because I really don't have any control. I make all the plans I want to make. My dad had great plans of his retirement, all the stuff he's going to do when he retired. And then the stock market crashed and his whole retirement evaporated overnight. Hey, you make all the plans you want. But you are not in control. We must choose self-reliance, God-dependence. Dependent on God. What is it that Paul, how did Paul say? He said it like this. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not Paul. Who am I thinking of? James, he said, uh, don't say, uh, tomorrow I'm going to go here, or the next day I'm going to go there, I'm going to go do this. Say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, I'll do that. If the Lord wills, I'll do this, because who's in control? God is in control. And I need to remind myself daily that I'm looking for him. You tell me. You guide me. You lead me. And the, the way, the important thing for us to remember when we do it is not to ask God after. Hey, Lord, you know what I did? I had all these plans. And I put them all together and I, <clears throat> I put them into motion. God, will you bless that? I think sometimes the Lord laughs. Yeah, that's not going to work, brother. When do we ask God? We ask him when we're putting it together. We sit there with a blank sheet and we look up to the Lord and we say, God, I need to make some plans. And I just pray by your spirit, you would guide me. And then we sit down and do it. And we believe that God's faithful to his word. If we ask him for wisdom, what's he say? I'll give you a snake. Scorpion. No, he says, I'm going to give you good things, right? If you ask for wisdom, I'll give wisdom by the Holy Spirit that has been poured out in us. So we see that. So here's what he's doing. He knows, he recognizes God must save us if if there's going to be any victory. Then in verse 6, we have God's answer. God responding to David's prayer. God has spoken in his holiness. So here's what God says. I will rejoice and I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkoth 
Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine, and Ephraim also is the helmet for my head, and Judah is my lawgiver. So as he's going through, basically he gives an outline of the nation, the whole nation, describing the, the nation. And what is his purpose? What is, what is God saying to David? All this land is mine. It don't belong to Israel. It don't belong to David or Solomon. It belongs to God. He says, this is mine. And I'm going to establish it. And I'm going to rejoice over it. And I'm putting it together. So God's letting him know, I have all this. He says, Ephraim is my helmet. That's the two biggest uh, tribes. You have Ephraim and Judah. Ephraim pictured as his strength. The strength of his head. And Judah pictured as the, the place of dominion or governance. The kingly line comes through Judah. Messiah is coming from Judah. The strength of the nation was, was Ephraim. You have these two places that split and, and find themselves at odds. But God's, God says, look, you're all mine. This is all mine. He even goes to the enemies. Moab is my wash pot. Or the one who will wash your feet. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Which is the picture of, I've got Edom under control. Now, Edom was part of this res uh, um, uh, resurgence that had come in and, and had brought part of this defeat. And so he's saying, look, i got my shoe over them. They're not going to win. Philistia will shout in triumph because of me. So God's saying, I'm moving in all these places. I'm sovereign over all these nations and in all these different areas. I'm moving, David. I, I, I've got you. So look how David responds to him in verse 9. So who will bring me to this strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? He's, he's still dealing with the idea. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't understand why we, why we lost this city. But the only way I get there is with you. The only way I get there is if you take me. And the sooner we learn God dependence, the better off we're going to be. Why? Because you can't save anybody. You ever been frustrated sharing the gospel over and over with somebody or continually trying to do things for them that will get them on the right track only to be frustrated by all your efforts and see a person still in rebellion against God? I know I have. But I can't save them. I can't open his eyes. I can't change his life. Who does that? God. It's better for me to recognize what David's saying. Who's going to save this person? Who can change his life? Who can get them on a different track? Who can change the direction of what's going on? Is it not you, God? Isn't it God who does it? I'm a, a tool in the master's hands, and prayerfully I will be a fit tool in the master's hands. Available for his use, available for him to do what he wants to do. In verse 10 he says, And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies, God, you weren't there. But I, I, I need to trust in you. It's you who's going to do it. So look what he says in verse 11. So give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Self-reliance is useless. God-dependence will bring victory ultimately. And God dependence doesn't save you from hard things or difficult lessons or failures in life or defeats in battle. What God dependence means is I'm going to follow you, God, through it all. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though life gets really hard and difficult and I'm struggling intently, even though that, what? I'm going to look to you. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You are with me. You're going to bring me through. You're going to take me out. You're, you're doing your perfect work in my life. That's what David's saying. The help of man is useless. I'm, nobody else can solve this problem but God. For me, in my life, God brought me to that point when, when I was diagnosed however many, in like 86 with HIV. Really, what was man going to do for me in 86? They didn't have no pills then. I sat in a hospital and watched 
I don't know, 10 or 15 guys that have been diagnosed around the same time as me die of AIDS. There's no hope. There's no help. So what do you do? Throw up your arms in despair and recognize there's nothing man can do to help me. So I made a choice. Kathy and I sitting in a little trailer with hot pink carpet and, and duck paneling. Duck hunting paneling was the ugliest thing you've ever seen in your entire life. Red drapes, hot pink carpet. Why? Whoever thought that was a good idea? We sat in that trailer and we decided we made a choice together in our screwed up, broken, stained, messed up lives to say we're going to be God dependent. God gets us through this or we perish. And the exciting thing is you look at history and the history of the, of the church and the great movements and the great revivals of, of, that took place all around the world. And, and what do you see men saying? They, they look at things and they say like uh, a George Knox looking at Scotland. George Knox, is that right? Anyway, it doesn't matter. You guys know who I'm talking John Knox. I knew George wasn't right. Didn't sound right. John Knox saying, give me Scotland or what? Or I die. Who's he dependent on himself? Who's he asking to give him Scotland? God, give me Scotland or I die. I, 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 I'm, I, I give myself to you to save this land. What happens if God's people do that here? What happens if God's people have that same attitude? Like David, self-reliance is not going to work. I need, I need to be God-dependent. So God, give me Buell or I die. God, give me Filer or I die. God, give me Castleford or I die. And honestly seeking the Lord to move in that way. What happens? Well, I can tell you what happened in Scotland. There was revival. Change of heart. And so the same thing David's saying here. It's not the help of man. We need you. So look what he says in verse 12. Through God, we will do valiantly. Through God, we will do valiantly. For it is he who will tread down our enemies. Who gives the victory? Do you? Are you going to discover the perfect argument that's going to bring down every accusation against God? No, you're not. Are you going to have some special answer because of your wisdom that's going to finally convince someone to put their faith in Christ? No, you're not. What you need to be is faithful to share. Faithful to tell people the gospel. Love somebody enough to tell them the road they're on leads to destruction and that there is another way and to pray God gives you the victory he's the one who puts down the enemies he's the one who opens the eyes he's the one who does the work so in David's case big battle I don't know what we're going to do God I'm going to send these guys down there Elishai and Joab they're going to go that way and, and uh, you know what the only way we're ever going to get the victory is if God does it so hold your place here go to 2 Samuel 10 I just want to I, I love that particular um, uh, battle that takes place for, for Abishai and Joab because you see the, the leadership of David coming to that goal, probably leading into this battle. And then you see the same attitude in, in Abish, Abishai and Joab. So <clears throat> we'll pick it up about verse 6. It says, So when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, so this after the battle, David's thinking, Oh, you done... You done bad, we're coming. The people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000 men. So big army. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zoab, or Zobah, and Beth Rehob and Ishtob and Maacah were by themselves in the field. So when Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. So here's what I want you to see. They go down to do battle and they find themselves surrounded. Oops. We walked into this battlefield and there's bad guys all around us. So Joab's looking around and he says, okay, so I'm going to set some guys in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother. And he set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. So you, I'm going to fight over here, you fight over there. Okay, so they, they put them in, and it says in verse 11, then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, come help me. 
If the people of Ammon are too strong for you, I will come help you. And then this is what they say. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Do you get what he's saying? He has a big battle and I'm not really convinced we can do this. So I'm going to take off on these guys. You take off on those guys. If you get in trouble, I'll try to help you. If I get in trouble, you try to help me and may God do what is right in his sight. We're here and it's either God, if God shows up, we'll have victory. And if God don't, we won't. But here we are under the order of our king to do what we need to do. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near from the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him and the people of Ammon saw and they fled before Abishai. So Joab and Abishai have the victory. But they stood there on the battlefield and they said, hey, we're here to do what our king has asked us to do. And if God shows up, we're going to have the victory. And ultimately that's what happens. God gives a victory. So what's established? David's trust in God. God delivers. Joab sees God move. Abishai sees God move. Two of David's mighty men are strengthened in the Lord as a result of going through a little bit of difficulty. Happens to us the same way. If you're looking for an easy life with no challenges, you should not have ever been born. This is not the place for that. Yeah, life... You want, a, you want that to happen, you need to repent and believe and look forward to your time with, with Christ in heaven. Shy of that, battles, fights, difficulties. You remember when you got together with your husband and you said, Oh, let's have, let's have babies. They're so cute, cuddly. They, look, they just love me. Oh, they just love me. And then they turn into monsters. And they have their own mind. And you say, I was cracking up. I, I get to watch my grandkids. So it's, it's kind of fun. Because I'm not emotionally uh, involved at all. I'm like, oh, look. They're disobedient. Whoop his butt. He's not disobedient. Cool. So I just get to sit back and watch. And I watch and I see the children. And I realize when the whole conversation begins. Jack, Jack. If you go get go get in the corner. I'm like, oh, the boy wants beat. I can see it in his eye. He's looking at mama like, no. He's going to say it in a minute. And then he's going to get beat and end up in the corner. And you think to yourself, Jack, Jack, just, just go to the corner. Just go. But the rebellion's in him. And what's a parent's job? To drive the rebellion from their child. That's the job. God gave you a stewardship over your children to do that very thing. Drive rebellion from the child. So how does God say to do it? Scourge him. <laughs> That's what he says. The father who loves his child scourges him. Man. So, you know, you, you find your way. I'm not giving a class on, I'm not an expert in child rearing. I'm a survivor. There's, you know, and I'm not even sure I've survived yet. My kids are... Like in their 20s, and they still don't listen to dad. So he, and I can't whoop them no more. So, you know, they're, that, that's God's job now. So we, we, we turn them over. But we see that, that heart, right, of, of uh, rebellion. Of rebellion. And we recognize, man, that's, that's in us all. That's in us all. Desire to, to, to disobey and to go in the opposite direction. Of what God's saying. But if we allow ourselves to be God dependent. And not self-reliant. I watch them little ones being self-reliant. I don't need you. I think it's fine. That I eat french fries. And sour patch kids. And that's all. But I'm not, pretty, I'm not sure you can live on that. So self-reliance is not going to get it done. When they're three. It's easy to see. When you're 33. It gets a little tougher. When you're 50, yeah, you still don't got it figured out. Don't fool yourself. You still don't got it figured out. And it's harder to see the self-reliance, right, rather than the God-dependence. But God-dependence is what we're looking for. We come to Psalm 61, a psalm again of David, a prayer for security. He cries out in verse 1, Hear my cry, O Lord, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto you. 
So he's, the, the description that he's given is, I'm, I, this is hard. I'm going through a difficult time. I feel like I'm at the end of the earth getting ready to fall off. Right? You know, you guys know you go to the end of the ocean and it just plunges into the abyss. He says, I, I'm at the end of the earth. I'm at the end of my chain. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the end of myself. And I'm crying out for God and I need you to hear me. So when my heart is overwhelmed, what do you do? When my heart is overwhelmed, David says, lead me to the rock. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock. Not to self-sufficiency, not to my own plans or purposes, not to that special counselor, not to all those other things that can be beneficial. Where does he go first? When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock. What's the purpose? The word, that word that he's using for rock, you just got to get it in your mind. It's not a pebble you can pick up and throw. It's not a, a big boulder. It's like the rock of Gibraltar. It doesn't move. The waves can beat on it all at once. It is still there. It's not going to be gone the next day or the day after that or the day after that. That is the rock that shall not be moved. You want to see another, in another view of it? Consider the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and all the kingdoms of the world and a rock not cut out with hands, falling, hitting it in the feet and grinding it to powder, wiping out all the kingdoms of the world and growing into this big mountain that fills all the earth. Which is a picture, ultimately, of the kingdom of Messiah. That rock can't be moved, can't be shaken. It is greater than anything else. So David says, <laughs> when I'm overwhelmed... That's where I got to go. I got to run to the rock that is higher than I. That always reminds me of Isaiah 55. God's ways are higher than my ways. God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. God understands more than I understand. Somewhere, in, and, and there are occasions where I might think I have achieved some level of understanding. And then I, I get to a new, uh, or I go to a new plateau, a new place, and I realize I don't know anything. And then God is infinitely above that. That's just in humankind. And there are sometimes I, I'll go online, I've been enjoying going and listening to a variety of guys <clears throat> debating on, on YouTube. It doesn't cost me anything. I get to hear smart people talk and occasionally I learn something from what they say. And I go listen and occasionally I find one and, and, and they're speaking English, but I cannot understand nothing that any one of them are saying. Like, oh, i got to stop the, the, the tape every 10 seconds and look up a word. What was that? What does that mean? So if there are human beings beyond my ability to comprehend, how much beyond that is God Almighty? So the idea that we can fully comprehend all the things going on around us is the, is the, the height of arrogance. Right? We look around and we say, that's bad! How many times have I told you guys, we don't have the ability to judge good from evil. Just because we ate the fruit didn't mean we learned anything. The fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, how'd that work out for us? We're pretty sure we know what's good and what happens. Oh, that turned out to be bad. And we're pretty sure that was bad. We think that was bad and then that turns out to be good. We don't have the ability to comprehend. His ways are higher than ours. When my heart's overwhelmed, I want that rock. I want the the stability of Christ. He doesn't wane. It doesn't change. He says, I am the Lord God. I change not. God did, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. If you haven't figured that out, you haven't spent enough time in the Old Testament yet. The concepts we talked about last week, the idea that Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's out of Leviticus. That wasn't a, a fresh thought. That Jesus came up with. That's Old Testament law. That's God's plan and purpose. So God doesn't change. He's stable. I can cling to him. And what God said is wrong is always going to be wrong. And it's not ever going to be right. I like that. I like it. Sometimes the things God says are wrong are things I like to do. So what do I do about that? I either make the choice, I'm going to be self-sufficient or God-dependent. If I'm God-dependent, then I need God to give me victory over the enemy in my life. Right? The foothold of the enemy in my life. Is there any of us who doesn't have a sin we've got to deal with? Is there any of us that, that aren't involved in something that God hates? 
No. So, so what do we choose? We choose to live God-dependent lives. God, give me the victory over the enemy. And that we just, we're just talking about that. God, give me the victory. And when my heart's overwhelmed, lead me to the stability of your rock that I can cling to. Because it's not going to change. Right's not going to become wrong. Wrong's not going to become right. Everything is stable. We can hold to it. We can cling to it. He says, for you have been a shelter to me. So he's got a lot of, of ways he's going to define the rock. Okay, that, that stability of Christ. A lot of ways he's going to define it. A shelter. A place I can go to for shelter from the, from the elements of the things that are going, around, going on around me. A strong tower. A place I can flee from the enemy. Right? Where I don't have to be afraid. Where I know I can be safe. I can have protection. He says, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. Your tent. Your, the, the tabernacle is such a beautiful place of God's presence. I can go to a place of God's presence and I can be, <clears throat> I can be safe there. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. The greatest example is the least protective. Uh, strong tower sounds good. I will hide in a strong tower from my enemies. Rock all around me. Nothing can get to me. But at the end, he's saying, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in the shelter of your wings. The picture of the, of the hen covering her chicks. The same example Christ uses on, the, on, the, on his way to the crucifixion. Looking out over Israel. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times... I have wanted to gather you together and cover you like a hen covers her chicks. What's he say next? But you were not willing. God dependence, self-reliance. I, I got I to make a decision. The problem is in a lot of our lives, we keep bouncing back and forth. God dependence, self-reliance. God dependence, self-reliance. God dependence, self-reliance. David saying, man, I just want to park in that place. I want to sit under your wings. I want to be where whatever I go through, I got you with me. I have your covering. For you, O God, have heard my vows. In verse 5, he's saying, in verse 1, he says, hear my cry. In verse 5, he says, you have heard. You've heard me. You've heard my, my vows, my promises, my gifts, my praise, my thanks. All of those things would be considered under the vow. The vow would be a picture of his offerings, his sacrifice, where he calls on the name of the Lord in the, in the tabernacle. So you've heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. He said, I'm following in the footsteps of the people who went before. I'm following in the footsteps of Abraham. I'm following in the footsteps of the guys who followed God before, the guys who followed Christ. I'm following in their footsteps. I have the heritage of those who fear your name. That's why we got the word of God. You have the exact same thing in the book of Hebrews when he says, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. What's he talking about? All the people of faith from the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, they have gone before us. That's the heritage of faith. Are we following them, the God-dependent, or are we looking for the self-reliant? We have our own plan or our own purpose. You have heard my vows. You will prolong the king's life. His years as many generations. Who's in control? Who's in control of my kingdom? Who's in control of my dynasty? Who's in control of my family? Who's in control of my life? David here is acknowledging you are. My kingdom will be as long as you say it is, and not a day longer. My kingdom will be as short as you say it is, but not a day shorter. God is in control. He is moving and working. His years as many generations, verse 7, he shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth, which may preserve him. Mercy and, 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 and truth. Those are the places we want to stand. When we look at Romans chapter 1 and we see the downward spiral of man, the thing that marks the downward spiral of man is that they're trying to suppress something. What are they suppressing? The truth. And if I'm suppressing the truth, it keeps me pretty busy. The, the example I've heard is of keeping a beach ball under the water. 
If you focus on suppressing the truth, you can do it. But if you start trying to do other things, that truth starts popping up. The more people you can get to help you suppress the truth, the easier it is to hold that truth down. David here is saying the opposite. Man, I want to bask in your truth. I want to stand in your mercy. I want to be there where that truth of God is shining on me and showing me where I'm a mess. And when the truth of God is showing me where I'm a mess and I'm God dependent, then I'm asking God to cleanse me. And what does he promise to do? Is there ever a time God says, if you call on my name, I'm not going to be there? I won't help you? He says, everyone, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord. How's it go? So if I call on his name, what's that mean? God's going to be there. God's going to do what he promises. I make that, I make that decision. I make that that vow, I come to him, I fall down, broken before him. Lord, I need you. I lift my hand to him. What's he going to do? He's going to take it. He's going to take it. God's not going to slap it away. God's going to take it. We, we follow that, that ideal that I'm coming to him in repentance and belief. God welcomes. God brings. God works. God does. So I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform perform my vows i'm going to praise you always i all of a sudden love is expressed out of my life for what god's done in my life for how he's met me and how he's walking with me and how he's delivering me and that love is expressed in spontaneous praise i want to talk about the one who saved me and the only way i'm able to walk the walk is if i'm standing in that place of truth and mercy if i'm god dependent self-reliance equals failure god dependence equals victory god gives it or we can't have it so we need to be to stand to to relish that place psalm 62 he cries out again a psalm of david truly my soul silently waits for god so the idea (coughs) i love this psalm in the next one so Hopefully I'm going to make it. But this one, David's saying, man, I silently wait. I've, I've, I've uttered everything I can utter. I've expressed everything I can express. And here I am. I, I don't have words anymore. I'm just waiting. Patiently waiting, enduring, longing for his response. Is that how we look at God? We look at God impatiently. You know, I try, if I had a nickel for all the times I had people tell me, I'd say, man, we need to pray about that. Well, I tried that. It didn't work. What do you mean I tried that and it didn't work? No such thing as that didn't work. You mean you prayed and the skies didn't open and God's voice didn't come down and the light didn't shine on your head and God didn't solve all your problems? Is that what you mean? Because you need a life of prayer. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Have yourself constantly standing in a place of dependence of God, waiting for him to move. Because if God don't move, you won't win. Well, I really need him to move, but I need him to move now. Oh, okay, let's go back. God dependent or self-reliant? If it's God dependent, we don't say when, we just wait. If God don't move, no victory. Right? If I... If I have cancer and I need God's healing in my life, I may say I need it now, I need it tomorrow, I need it soon, or if you don't hurry up and show up, I'm not going to make it, or I make the choice, I'm going to live dependently on you, God. Do you get me through tomorrow? The only difference between that person and you is that person knows they're dying, and you don't. But the Bible says your life is a vapor. It's like the grass. If you understood how truly fragile it is and how much it depends on him, every day you each would live in the same place. Silently waiting for God to deliver, to move, to come. Here's what I can promise you. Just like a pregnant woman. We have at least one in here. Just like a pregnant woman. Baby's coming. Baby's coming. Nothing you can do. You can have a fit. You can kick and scream. I want that baby to come now. Doctor said the baby would come yesterday and the baby hadn't come yet, but the baby's going to come when? The baby comes when the baby comes. Don't drive yourself crazy. Silently waiting for God. For from him, 
out of him, out of God, comes my salvation. My salvation doesn't come out of me. It's not worked out of me. It's worked out of God. God brings it. God establishes it. Look at verse 2. He only. Is there any other rock? According to 1 Corinthians 10, the rock is Christ. Is there any other rock? No. He only is my rock. He only is my salvation. He only is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. That's going to be the, the, the refrain, the chorus that's going to come up in this psalm again. The idea that God is it. He's my all in all. He's my everything. Everything I need, he's got it. My salvation doesn't come in any other place or in any other way. Then David looks at the, at the attackers, his problems, his troubles. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain like a leaning wall on a tottering fence. So as he's looking at his detractors, the problem, the wicked, whatever, whatever face you want to put on it, the struggle that he has in his life, he's looking at that struggle. He's saying, man, I don't know why you keep kicking me. You are like a, 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 a leaning wall on a tottering fence, which means that's all coming down. You cannot have victory. You cannot have victory over me. I belong to God. Whatever temporary victory you may have in my life, it's temporary. Look at Job. How long was Satan victorious in his life? I don't know that he was ever. But it could make him miserable for a time. Could it be forever? Is it possible for you to, to live out your entire existence on earth in misery? Sure. But what happens then? You're in the presence of God, and he says, I'll turn it all around. I say, you, you'll, be, you'll be miserable uh, for the evening, but joy comes in the morning. And a radical transformation of all that pain in the presence of God. Apart from that, there is no other hope. It's all in him. So he's saying, he's it. He's all I need. Go ahead, kick me. What good's that going to do? <laughs> Verse 4. Now it's like he, he spoke to them. Well, I don't know why you guys are kicking me, because ultimately you're going to lose and then he's looking at you and me and he says, they only consult to cast him down. They only come together. They only get together because they have a common en enemy. Who who's that remind you of? It was Pharisees, Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers. Those guys didn't hang out at parties. The only thing that brought them together was their hatred of Christ. They only come together to cast him down. They delight in lies. They, they don't care about the truth. They don't care about the truth. It's not their inability to see the truth. What did Romans say? It's not because they don't understand the truth or they don't see the truth or they don't know that God exists. It's because they suppress the truth because they want the lie. Suppressing the truth, they believe the lie. That's what Romans tells us. They push the beach ball under the water so that they can have the lie. Our country is living in that right now. Suppress the truth, buy the lie. Suppress the truth, live the lie. That's their goal. That's their desire. Why? Because they want self-reliance, not God-dependence. We want the, the choice is not the reality or the truth or the evidence. The choice is, I don't want God to rule over me. I want to be dependent on Him. I want it to be dependent on self. Self-reliance means I push the truth down, I suppress it, and I hold on to the lie. So he says, they delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. They, they can look good on the outside, but man, it's, it gets dicey when they... It, it's kind of funny. I, I, got a, I got a chance to watch a brief... There, there's actually two episodes of the Dr. Drew show on CNN where Dr. James White, who is a Christian apologist, was there to discuss... I think it was the Bruce Jenner deal, back when the Bruce Jenner thing was news, before the Supreme Court. And the funny thing was, literally, the first time he was there, he was on the phone. And, and so they asked him to come back again. And he said, I'm not coming back. If I'm coming back, I'm coming back on a show. So you guys can't just talk over me. And I can't respond. So they asked him one thing. He, he responds on the phone. And he says, what if Jesus was right? That's all he said. An utter eruption of as much hatred as you can imagine being poured out on a human being for that opinion. That, as you can uh, express on, on the Dr. Drew show, and he could never respond after that. So he thought, well, that was kind of dumb for me to go on that show like that because, you know, I just got to be the whipping boy. You strap me to a post, I get to say Jesus' name, everybody hits me. 
So, but then they called him back and said they wanted him back, and they brought him back, and he went on the show. And when he went on the show, he was able to battle for for a foothold in being able to express the truth of of uh, his worldview, the, the Christian worldview, and that went a lot better. Still roasted him in the after show, but what the point of it all is you see when you start to bring the truth in amongst a bunch of people who are suppressing the truth their hatred of the truth it's not their 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 hatred of of your attitude there's no attitude there there's just the belief that Christ is true and the hatred of the truth just like pilate right he said are you a king do you believe that or have others told you that well, all these, your chief priests and your Pharisees, they brought me to you. I'm the one judging you. Jesus said, if my kingdom were here, my people would fight. But my kingdom's not here. My kingdom's not here. He said, I've come to bear witness of the truth. And everyone who believes the truth hears my voice. What did Pilate say next? Get est veritas. What is truth? And he walked away. Everyone who loves the truth hears my voice. And we, we see that. that. That is evident in our world. So they bless with their mouth. They look good on the outside. They look all nice. But as soon as they find out what you're about, you're tolerance of everything but Christ. That's good. That's how I know Christ is real. Christ is true. When everybody else can get along okay, like, ooh, that's probably not good. Because truth cannot, by definition, allow everything. That's not truth. Truth is exclusive. By definition. Can't be any other way. I don't care what philosophers say. That's the most ridiculous argument. That argument in itself is, is proof of absolute truth. By making the statement, there is no such thing as absolute truth. You've just made an absolute statement. That's dumb. That is a, a breaking of the law of contradiction. That says something can't be both A and non-A at the same time. You can't by definition say there's no absolute truth by making an absolute statement. Doesn't work. Can't stand. Doesn't make sense. God's way is the way. He says, my soul, which means my whole being, in verse 5, my whole being waits silently for God alone. So he's saying, all I want, I am choosing my desire to live utterly, completely God-dependent. It's him. My whole being waits silently for God alone. For my expectation is from him. My desire. He's my desire. He's my treasure. He's that my focus. And then he goes to the, to, the, to the chorus, remember? He only is my rock and my salvation. He only is my defense. That first he only rules over the entire phrase. Uh, <clears throat> I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Look, everything I need is in him. I just want him He's making a proclamation, God-dependent. I'm God-dependent. I depend on God to know truth from lie. I depend on God to know light from darkness. I depend on God to understand and to realize what my worldview should look like. And then it's not my job to make God's truth conform to my life. It's my job to make my life conform to God's truth. We want to conform to his purpose and his plan. So verse 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. So now David looks corporately, looking at all the people. Guys, come on, come with me. Come with me into this God-dependent existence. For God is a refuge for us. He's what we need. Did all of Israel ever corporately come? Never. Never did. But it doesn't stop God from asking. Doesn't stop him through his prophets from speaking. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than air. (laughs) 
What's he saying? Men of high degree, low degree, every degree, everywhere you look, we're all the same. We're broken. We're stained. We are just the breath. How fragile is that? What can you hold up with your breath? Nothing. Maybe a bank if it's really bad. But for the most part, you're not holding up anything with your breath. No strength. No, no power. None of that stuff. It's short. It's... It's weak. It's all that stuff. He's saying all mankind everywhere. The common theme that, that so often has been uh, portrayed by the media as hatred or bigotry is the idea, the statement that we are all sinners. I stand before God guilty just like the most vile person and whatever sin they're in, whatever they're into, stands before God exactly the same as me. Both of us require God to open our eyes and to give us grace that we might be saved. We both come the same way. Repent, that's the problem. See, the problem in, in the current situation in our world is saying to someone you need to repent of your sin to come to the Lord is offensive. I want to be self-reliant, not God-dependent. I, I'm, I'm happy for equality in marriage. Is that even a true statement? There was equality in marriage. Every single man had the freedom to marry. Every single woman had the freedom to marry. But the word marry means to blend together. And you can't blend together mirror images. <laughs> you blend together differences. That's why God said man and woman. The only two that could unite together and bring forth life. The only hope that a nation can continue is that union. The problem is, here's the sad truth. Here's what the church did. The church was so upset many, many years ago about, sorry, about marriage uh, between blacks and whites that the church asked the state to issue marriage licenses. That's where the state started issuing marriage licenses so they could stop interrace marriages. Because the church was dumb, being self-reliant and not God-dependent. I'm not saying the church has never done dumb stuff. church does dumb stuff all the time. Why? Because it's full of people. People do dumb stuff. If we were God-dependent, we'd do less dumb stuff. But we started it. We put that in the hands of the state. Now the state has not made equality. The state has redefined. I love it because the president said, you should be able to love whoever you want. Do you really think he means that? That's what he said. Does he mean you should be able to love whoever you want? If he does, we're in more trouble than we think. Because love whoever you want is a pretty broad statement. Right? No, they don't mean you should be able to love everybody you want. Because then you got all kind of craziness. Bestiality, pedophilia, all that stuff. If, if that's the foundation of the statement. And if that is what they mean... Stand by. Well, things are going to get even dicier. Even dicier. The point is they wanted the opportunity to redefine what God said. What our nation has done is look to the Lord and said, we will not be ruled by you. That's okay. Did it change your job? Just made it a little bit easier. What do you mean? It means there's a lot of lost people. There's a lot of people who don't understand who God is and, and how God's law works and how his plan of salvation is to be established. And how are they going to know if you don't tell them? And that's the only thing Christ gave us to do. He did not say go into all the world and feed the hungry. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. But what did Jesus say? How long will you have the poor with you? Always. So you're going to solve that problem? No, and you can feed somebody and they can still go to hell. Can't they? Or build orphanages or do all those other things. I'm not saying those things are bad and that those things are wrong. What am I saying? He gave us one thing to do. What's the one thing he gave us to do? Go proclaim the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves. And when you go proclaim that, he said, if they receive you, Stay. Share the truth. And if they reject you, do what? Shake off the dust. Don't freak out. 
I didn't save it. The guy didn't get saved. Maybe you planted a seed. You did your job. Now where do you go? Next one. Next one. Next one. Next one. Twelve men. Actually, eleven. Okay, we'll go back to twelve. Twelve men filled with the Holy Spirit changed the world because they did that. They were willing to be God-dependent, not self-reliant. They didn't come up with a program or a plan. They just did simply what God said. Go tell. And things changed everywhere that they went. Well, he says in verse 10, Do not trust in oppression or vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Don't, don't put your hope in your, in your cash. Money comes, money goes. Mostly, for me, money goes. That's okay. It's okay. God has spoken once. Twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Ah, unfortunately, that's as far as we can go. You, you render to each one according to his work. Your plan, your purpose, truth, mercy are in you. What is it that God is looking for from you and I? From you and I, he's looking for us to lay our lives down and say, I'm dependent on you. I'm not self-reliant. It's you. You gave me a simple thing to do. Simple plan. He didn't ask me to make a new plan. You didn't ask me to change what it says. You didn't ask me to take the message of the word of God and say, well, that can't fit in our society today, so that needs to change. Nope. All you told me to do is take the truth out there and pray that I open their eyes. Does it require some special degree to do that? You can practice it with me. Uh, God's asking all men everywhere to repent and believe. That's not complicated. Well, it's not complicated. God says we all are sinners. How many of us does that include? All of us. Oh, you got it. Man, you're already ready for first year seminary. We're all sinners and we need his grace. He saves me. I put my trust in him. We have a symbiosis that takes place of me laying down before him and him picking me up. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will do what? Exalt you. He'll lift you up. God does the work. I trust in him. And then I go forward and share the good news. The God story. That God saved you and he's willing to save anyone who will repent and believe. Amen? Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.